BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. The pandemic has been hard on everyone, but some groups have been disproportionately disadvantaged. People who are frontline workers people whose jobs don't allow them to stay safe, people who have lost loved ones or themselves gotten very ill, but also parents who have had to face homeschooling their children without any kind of preparation and also maintaining their own jobs. The situation has impacted mothers in particular. Many of them have left the workplace in order to take over schooling their children, and there's no sign that they're going to be able to go back anytime soon. We know that becoming a mother changes your brain, but are there things that we can glean from studying mothers in other species? Can we separate the effects of having children and bearing children from caring for them after they're born? Abigail Tucker is a previous guest on Inquiring Minds. You might remember her from a book she wrote about cats called The Lion in the Living Room. I love talking to her, and so I was really excited when her new book, Mom Genes, Inside the New Science of Our Ancient Maternal Instinct, came across my desk. Abigail Tucker, welcome back to Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much for having me. So when we last talked to you, we talked about lions in the living room, you know, cats. And I don't know if it's been since then or in addition to then, but now there are three other little lions in your living room. Is that correct? Well, actually, I right now, I we are on the, the cusp of getting a new cat. I have suddenly acquired a new kid. So we're Our cat-kid ratio is zero to four currently, but that's going to change. It's going to change. My research actually into cat domestication sort of made me feel like it was a cruelty to bring a cat into a house with an under two-year-old. So as soon as the youngest kid turns two, we're up in our cat ante. (laughs) But since then, you'll have your hands full with four little ones. So is that the impetus for this current book? Yeah, it is. I mean, I guess I I see the book as a a slightly more selfish kind of scientific me time deep dive into my own psychology and the minds of my friends and also women who I just happen to encounter in the world in various ways and kind of learning a little bit more about this phase of development as 
some neuroscientists who study this see motherhood. And I never thought about it in those terms that motherhood isn't just really like a job description. It's kind of a secret change that occurs in your brain. And I guess I've been so distracted by all the other distressing things that I could see that were happening to me over the course of having four kids that I thought that it was kind of a revelation to be able to think about the hidden brain stuff as well. Yeah, I think that's for a lot of us, especially those of us who are neuroscientists. It's something frightening to think that your brain can fundamentally be changed by a decision like this to have a child or something that is put upon you if it wasn't something that you decided but happened to you. Um, yeah, of even happens, scarier. <laughs> right? And I think we underestimate the effects. Oh, we know we say it's, there's a bunch of sleep deprivation. Maybe there's some hormonal changes. But in your book, you document something much more deeper in a way related to our evolutionary history about us as a primate species. So I found it really fascinating that you were able to not only interweave your own memoir. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for saying that word out loud. <laughs> <laughs> but also your experience communicating science from many different disciplines, your work in the Smithsonian, I see all that in the book. So I want to sort of start with this, just this whole question of a maternal instinct, which I think, you know, you do a great job of like just questioning the verbiage that we're using. So why is it problematic to talk about a maternal instinct? I think the biggest problem is that an instinct kind of makes it sound like moms know what they're doing in some kind of automatic fashion. And that is so far from true, even for people who have four kids. And especially when I had my first kid, I was just kind of beyond clueless, beyond helpless. And the idea of a maternal instinct framed as a set of steps or actions that you could just sort of instinctively take would have been like a very distressing idea to me. And one of the things that kind of shocked me in my research was that if anything, humans have like less of these rote behaviors than our mammalian sisters do. Like we really cross the world, you know, we're such a weedy species. We have so many different cultures and climates that we inhabit. There's really precious few things that you could say every mother instinctively does. The closest thing that I found to something like this was as a, a fixed action pattern or an automatic mothering behavior would be this left-sided cradle bias, which is not a uniquely human thing. It's something that other animals seem to have this weird kind of impulse to keep their kids on their left side. And as far as I understand it, it has something to do with the way that we are perceiving the baby's state and the way it's being processed into our brain. And somehow having them on the left side is better than that, is better for that kind of thing. But in terms of what I think the maternal instinct is, is this awakening or a kindling and unmasking was a very very poetic word that one rat scientist used of a hidden self and the emergence of a new motive. So really, it's like a motive or a drive that is related to the perception of and response to mostly infant signals and finding those signals to be newly rewarding, I think. <laughs> or newly disturbing. <laughs> now it's like I can't walk through an airport and hear another person's child cry without instinctively having an emotional reaction to it as opposed to before I had kids, it was just annoying. We like, were so ignored, right? <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> 
it was bliss. I completely, it can be kind of painful. And it's right. It's not a, at all an awakening. It's, it's literally an awakening sometimes. Like there's this classic study from, I think it was maybe the 60s when women used to be kind of jammed into these collective maternity rooms where you'd be there in the hospital for a long time. But the bad news is you're in there with like six or eight other women. And they figured out that women were able to, within 48 hours, sort of wake up only for the sound of their own baby crying, which I thought was kind of shocking. It's this across the boards sensitization to infant cues, but then a special sensitization in the human case to our own particular kid and its cues. And not all animals have that. My understanding is that like, if you have an animal that's not a communal animal, like say a rat, like to a rat, a baby is a baby, but then there's animals that are even more sensitive to their individual infants cues, like sheep. Sheep can recognize their baby's smell. It's almost like instantaneously. And they have to do that because they are herd animals and they're around other sheep, other ewes, uh, lambs, and they have to be able to ID who's who or else they're going to waste their milk, which is really expensive to make on somebody else's baby. And that's bad. Yeah. I mean, the study that you describe in your book, I chuckled a little bit at the experimenters or the poor grad student who had to like create this, but they like tried to fool the use with like pseudo scented, uh, like, you know, things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I know. Right. And like, the use could pick it up. They knew like, this is not... <laughs> They, they call the scientists bluff. I know it's, I mean, the sheep are really hard to fool. And one of the first things I did for my reporting was I went to, it sounds like something from Game of Thrones. I want to say a night watcher. I was on vigil at the sheep barn waiting for these pregnant ewes to have babies. And my job was to ideally call the farm manager if they went into labor overnight, um, because some of these breed of sheep that they had, they could have like not only one, but two or three or even four babies at a time and things could get really complicated. But it was just this super interesting experience where I learned that if there is a baby that's born to especially a first time mother sheep, the things that you can do to kind of like induce her to care for it, sometimes you have to perform like vaginal stimulation, <laughs> vaginal cervical stimulation on these sheep to like get the maternal instinct flowing. And I was just kind of like seized by dread the entire time. I was both really excited to meet the baby lambs, but also a little bit nervous about what might happen. But I think sheep are a super cool animal to study. And most of my book is about humans, rats and mice and monkeys, but I got to put in a plug for the sheep. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was very interesting to learn. I did not realize that they were so attached to their offspring. So one of the things I want to start out, but, you know, we're already 10 minutes in, you know, I want to first say that although we're talking about, for the most part, people who identify as women who give birth to children out of their own bodies, there are, of course, many different ways in which people can become parents and how they identify. And I wonder if you could just speak to that about sort of how much of what we're going to talk about in your book is specifically related to a woman who gives birth to a child that is a reflection of at least 50% of their genes versus someone who adopts a child or is a caregiver in some other way. Like which part of that is kind of in terms of changing the brain, the most important part? So I think there's a huge interest in studying these other ways of being a parent. There's interesting experiments that they do in what they call virgin <laughs> 
word makes me laugh a little bit, but virgin mice and rats, where they see if there's ways to induce maternal behavior just by hanging out with rat or mice pups, basically. And basically, the story is that if you let one of these sexually naive, non-maternal animals hang out with a baby, at first, she's going to be like you and me in the airport, you know, running away, trying to find a quiet place, trying to avoid the babies, sometimes even grislier things happen, and they'll eat the babies. But if you're able to manage this for like something like seven or eight days, just through exposure to pup cues, the naive or virgin female will start to change and her brain will even begin to change and she starts performing maternal behaviors. And I just thought that was so fascinating as a model for other modes of becoming maternal. If you don't have to be a woman who pops out a bunch of kids in the the old fashioned way. I will say though that the vast majority of studies, especially human studies, are done at this point in women. Dad science is like, even though mom science is a really underfunded and emerging field in some ways, like dads are even worse off than we are. Like they're that's an even more minuscule area of study. And I think it's really interesting. But I would say that not only is there this bias towards biological mothers and I mean, I'm not sure if bias is the right word, because I think if you looked across the board, many people who are mothers are biological mothers. But there is so far an emphasis, which may or may not be appropriate, on women. And it's like mothers of one. I feel like scientists have told me that the people who tend to come into their labs are sort of overwhelmingly like middle class white mothers of one because that's the people that are in their sphere at the university like when you put up a poster in a neighborhood like if it's a college town this is who you get and this idea of these being first-time mothers is sort of self-explanatory it's that if you have five kids it's a lot harder to schlep down to the lab and go into a MRI scanner or an EEG cap and like hang out for three hours so I think a lot of scientists would say that that something that they're actively trying to remedy. But I also don't want to downplay, like, I do think that just like the ordinary blah mother who had a a baby the old fashioned way is just so stuffed with mystery that we haven't begun to unpack. And I think by unpacking those mysteries, we're going to understand the way other people become parents too. And we should be studying all of these things ideally. And I, you know, I think even as we talk about some of these changes, we can sort of outline which ones are sort of more related to environmental cues that maybe are a little bit more could encompass, say, for example, even, you know, another female mom who wasn't the one who actually gave birth, but the partner or what have you. Um, So just to be inclusive, because I think a lot of the things that we're going to talk about are a result of experience interacting with biology, not just the switch that gets turned on when something comes out, either your belly or your vagina. Right. Which I think, you know, there's that side of it where like a lot of people really do think that there is something fundamentally different about a vaginal birth that triggers some of these things. And so we can, you know, anyway. And I should just say, I mean, I had I had four C-sections and I was totally fine with that. I, I wasn't like obsessed with an idea of the ideal birth. But there is actually research that delves into like if you are given Pitocin in the labor and delivery ward, does that change your maternal behavior? If you have a C-section, does that have any kind of impact on your maternal behavior? If you breastfeed or don't, does that impact your maternal behavior? And basically, like there's kind of suggestions that 
that some of these variables may matter like a teeny little bit, but it's also the case that humans are so diverse and adaptable that there's really just no one way to do it. And that's back to what we were talking about, about the huge smorgasbord of, <laughs> of maternal behaviors across the world. There's just not really any rule for how to do things. And so anyways, I personally, like I would read, a, like having had four C-sections, I would read like you may be somewhat less sensitive in the first months to infant cues. And I kind of felt a little bit bad about that. Then I also knew that in my own experience that those things can be overcome. Also, that sounds kind of good. Like, <laughs> exactly. you know, exactly. so much going on. If you can dampen that down. Exactly. <laughs> just just like, chill five, out. You know? Yes, exactly. Just, just stuff up the ears. <laughs> So in case we haven't lost them already, we also have a lot of listeners who identify as male, who don't have children. So why should they care about this topic? Well, like we talked about, there is a plasticity that can occur in the male brain. And we know that male lab animals can become paternal or male maternal, however you want to say it, if they're given enough exposure to pup cues. Um, I think that it's really important for men to realize that though, that to undergo this transformation, there isn't this same heavy chemical lacing incentives that women experience. Basically, men have to kind of be present and vow to be part of the picture. There was one interesting study that showed that men start undergoing some of these less significant but still real hormonal changes like a drop in testosterone or becoming more interested in infant cues. One study showed that it was like, well, smelling pregnant women started like kicking off some of these cascades. But I don't think it's the case that you can get somebody pregnant and then like go to Kokomo or whatever for the next two years and never see them again, you're not going to really transform the way that that woman who you got pregnant is going to, like it or not, transform. The other thing, though, that I think is so essential and interesting is that paternal behavior has major effects on maternal behavior. And there was one study that I love that showed, I think it was a study of a new Swedish paternity leave um, policy. Other countries are so far ahead of us, like we're still working on paid maternity leave. They're like normal paid paternity leave. And they showed that through taking these steps, giving men paid paternity leave to be at home and help their partners, that resulted in a really big, like 25% drop in the amount of anti-anxiety medications that moms were getting. And that's because one of the things that floored me throughout the research was how socially sensitive moms are to the cues of other people around them. Social support is so important. And really a supportive partner, be it a dad, or, you know, another mom or whoever is the partner in this situation can have like measurable, real physical effects on the mother's health. And I should say too, if there is no partner in the picture, if the mother is single, then other people can also step in. So if you're a guy friend and you know a single mom, you can help her in ways that are actually going to impact her biology. Same thing for like grandpas and grandmas, especially that they can safeguard their daughter's mental this transformation that happens because it can get a little rocky. And that's like one of the things that to me, when I was kind of thinking, you know, is this real? Like, am I just tired? Or is there really a transformation that a hidden transformation that occurs inside of moms? One of the strongest pieces of evidence is that this like proliferation of mental health problems that crop up around the time of first birth. And that's everything from really common, like baby blues to postpartum depression, which seems to be on the rise, by the way, to obsessive 
compulsive disorder. And then also really big things like first hospitalization for bipolar manic episodes. And that's because our brain is in transformation and a certain amount of chaos and that we can get stability from the love that we feel from others. So dads and everyone else, we're counting on you. Don't go. Um, And also, even if you don't have children yourself, you probably have parents or people who acted as parents. And the other thing I found really interesting is how much your book talks about the research showing parental influences on one generation down, like that how you were parented has a big impact. I mean, we maybe intuitively know this, but the fact that sort of it seems to also be read into the biology was really interesting to me. Oh, yeah. And that's kind of a big mystery, both in like neuroscience, but also like Freudian psychology. Like, what is the idea of intergenerational transmission of parenting? Like, why do we mirror our parents? And I thought it was so cool that scientists in the lab are able to get at some of that through all kinds of ways, everything from watching um, families over these longitudinal periods, like 30 years, to doing these genetic tests that are trying to ask, well, could there be a gene that these people share in common? And that's why they ask the same way. The thing that I thought was most fascinating is that when you're looking at these, these patterns are passed down in animal families too, like things like abuse, like abusive monkey mothers tend to have daughters who grow up to be abusive. And the fascinating thing is that speaking of the importance of adoptive parents, they found that if you do a cross fostering story, a study so that an abusive monkey mother is raising the child, the the monkey baby of a non-abusive mother and vice versa, the infant comes to resemble the adoptive parent, not the biological parent. And that's not to say that genetic inheritance is not involved at all in this, but the role when you have a relationship with a child, the love and care that you can give that child can like change their brain, whether or not you are related by blood or not. And I just thought that was kind of amazing. Yeah. I mean, I like the fact that we sort of have better tools to measure the neuroscience now, because I feel like a lot of people might say, oh yeah, sure. If you foster a child or you adopt a child, you're going to have an impact on that child's behavior. But you're also going to have an impact on the child's brain development in a way that is not that far apart from what would be the case if you were the biological parent. Exactly. There can be all kinds of epigenetic changes and genes that are turning on and off and influencing the growth of the brain. And there's a study, I think it was from Yale University that showed that women who have warmer relations who report, I mean, it's hard to, this is a self-report thing, but who report warmer relationship with their own mothers are slightly more receptive to infant cues and have measurable differences in gray matter in their brains. And I thought that was really interesting. Again, that's not like a damning thing for anybody who doesn't have a great relationship with their mom or doesn't have a mom. It doesn't mean that your brain's going to like go off the rails. But I did think it was a powerful testament to the power of invisible social relationships and that even the past can impact our modern parenting. And I know that like dealing with my own kids now, it's kind of given me this feeling of double jeopardy. Like I'm not just caring for you. I'm caring for your grandkids, great, great, great grandkids. Where does it end? So it's a lot to think about, but I think it's still really powerful. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Wait, you mentioned Pitocin and the effects that it might have. And there's some plausibility here because, of course, Pitocin is essentially oxytocin, which probably is the one hormone that people have heard of that is related to attachment. So tell us the latest research on oxytocin and what it does to our brains. Well, I mean, I don't want to masquerade here, especially with an actual neuroscientist as a neuroscientist, but oxytocin is this, the name means swift birth. It's like the stuff that goes into your body when you're going heading into labor and delivery and it's facilitating uterine contractions. And I think the expression of breast milk. So it's doing a lot of big things in your body, but scientists are increasingly captivated about sort of what it does to the brain at the same time. And it's also in the literature associated with like social bonding and romantic love and like mutual gazing and things like that. And so I went to this lab at NYU where they study maternal behavior in mice. And basically this really interesting grad student did a study where she took those virgin mice who, again, are like beyond indifferent to baby cries and will potentially eat babies or at least definitely ignore babies, doesn't have any interest in babies. They planted probes into their brains and exposed their brains while they were still alive to a flood of oxytocin. And they were able to measure the electrical readings that their individual brain cells were giving off over a period of like three hours. And the exposure to oxytocin seemed to sensitize the neuron to this sound. And when I say sound, these are sounds inaudible to human ears, but not inaudible to mother mouse ears, to pup cries. And over this course of three hours, the readings were getting spikier and spikier. And so the virgins sort of through the addition of oxytocin started resembling moms more. Now, if only the story were that simple, there's all these other hormones that also have secret lives as neurotransmitters in our brains that everything from stuff gushing out of the placenta to hormones associated with lactation, all of these things are like making this cocktail in the maternal brain and changing the way that how receptive the cells are to these chemicals and then gradually kind of creating new connections in the brain that can result in like what we see in these these before and after scans where you know you have uh, someone whose brain measurably changes oxytocin is super important but it's not the be-all end-all i don't think so what is the be-all end-all well, <laughs> that's the problem. I don't think we know. I mean, I think scientists are able to, they are able to like manufacture mothers in the lab by injecting them with stuff. I was very weirded out to read that they figured out how to do this in maybe the 70s or 80s. Like if you take the blood of a mother rat and inject it into a virgin, you can make her act maternal in some way, which is a little creepy to understand. But that's part of what they're trying to do. They know, they've known for a while that a really important 
important, I think they call it a central site of maternal behavior is the uh, medial preoptic area. And they basically know that because like they can stimulate that area in the brain, which is really deep down and involved in a lot of primal things. And they can create maternal behavior. And then even more strikingly, if they disable that area, maternal behavior ceases. And so they have like a good idea of what's going on in rats. But then when you get to humans thank God, we're a little bit less readily available for dissection. They use these tools that are, I mean, a rat scientist would say cruder, you know, they're using MRI machines to see volume and they're using fMRIs to see like which parts of the brain are involved when mothers versus non-mothers hear baby cues or look at baby pictures. I volunteered for one of these experiments, which was kind of interesting when I was pregnant with my last kid. And it's very mysterious. You go in there and you put in on one of these EEG caps and you stare at baby pictures for a long time, listen to baby cries and kind of like press a computer button a lot. I'm not sure I want to know what my particular (laughs) reading said, but it's a lot less precise than getting to like hack open a brain or implant a probe or things like that. So the rat people are way ahead. And, you know, measuring maternal behavior in rats is easier. Like they have these behaviors that we know are related only to mothering, whereas human mothers do all kinds of strange things. I loved how you opened your book talking about, I think it was a friend that you were visiting who said that she grew a new heart when she gave birth. And that's like almost literally true. (laughs) So I want to talk a little bit about the fact that when you're pregnant, you actually have cells from the fetus that aren't just contained to the uterus, but wander all over the body and what the implications there might be. Can you tell us about that? Yes, this is very peculiar. Fetal microchimerism is like one of these both far out and familiar fields and not a whole lot of labs study this, but basically they're stem cells. I think it's the best way to say it from the placenta when you're pregnant, they cross over into the mother's body. And for a while, they're kind of undifferentiated cells hanging out. But over time, they embed in your body and they become part of your lungs or your liver or your heart. I went particularly to a lab where they study the way that fetal cells might heal maternal hearts. And that's what we're talking about. When I visited that lab, I kept thinking of this thing that my best friend had said, like, I feel like I grew a new heart. And here is this lab where they were studying how the regenerative potential of um, fetal cells and how they might help mothers recover from certain heart disorders that occur around the time of pregnancy and have sort of weirdly high recovery rates because in most people, heart cells are really, really hard to regenerate. And their theory is that it's these fetal cells that are like kind of fresh off the presses, reinforcements here to help out with the heart. And I just think it's fascinating that I have the cells of my four children in me now and I'll have them forever. They don't just go away at the end of pregnancy. They've also found these cells in the brains of mice mothers. And I think it's a fair assumption that they're in human moms too. And that's also like a very scary thought. I think the heart is a little bit sort of cozier to think about than the brain. And there's competing ideas. that's like the cells might be evolved to help the maternal organism survive because in a lot of mammal species, that's basically completely key for the survival of infants. But there's also theories that these fetal cells might be flocking to the breast tissue to stimulate it for like pouring out all of your calories to the baby in a few months. And so it's kind of like one of these interesting game theory ideas from evolutionary biology, but that is just a fact. Like we have these cells in our bodies and we also have the cells of our moms in our bodies. That was something I didn't get into too much, but it's again, one of these weird science ideas. 
Yeah, it's not that far from Toxoplasma gondii, the parasite, and we talked about in your last book oh that you know, turns people into bad people. So now, yeah, we have a new culprit now, and and they're you know one years old, and they're they're wiping their boogers on your brain. <laughs> Um, so there's so many things that we can talk about. Well, one other thing that I found really interesting was that a lot of stereotypes of mom behavior are related to overreactions, like the tiger mom or the hysteric mom or, you know, all this kind of stuff. And yet you talk about in your book how late stages of pregnancy and motherhood, like it kind of makes us more chill. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it mellows you out. And, you know, there are interesting studies done in labs where they'll kind of try to antagonize pregnant women or new mothers by doing different things to them, either physical things like sticking their hands in ice water or putting them on a treadmill, measuring their stress hormones. They just naturally are kind of like insulated against stress and aren't giving off as many hormones, as much cortisol as you would normally expect. And the theory is that like, that's because having a new baby involves like staying still and doing all the boring stuff like breastfeeding and there's this dampening of the stress system that occurs and they actually think that that could be related in some way to postpartum depression like postpartum depression could be a spiraling out of control of a normally adaptive thing now that's not to say that moms are not to be trifled with because actually the way we talk about it with like cats and the process of domestication and how it sort of like shrunk the fear systems of cats brains when one way of saying is like mellow is like another way of saying it is like less afraid. So mothers are, they're chilled out. And they're also very perceptive. Like there are these interesting studies about how moms see the faces of strangers slightly differently. They see colors differently. The idea is that they're hyper aware, they're both chilled out internally and hyper aware of their environment. And those two things like meshing together are kind of what gives rise to these maternal aggression behaviors that everybody loves to talk about the idea of the goat mom who headbutts the wolf down the mountainside, like what is facilitating that and that dampening that chilling out is a part of it but it's really interesting because it does seem counterintuitive like you think the pregnant woman is like in the baby's safety that she's going to be like clutching the edge of her seat at all times but you know I guess the story is that that would be kind of wasted energy and moms need to save themselves for the tasks that are really at hand and there have been studies outside of the lab like watching pregnant women respond to real life events like earthquakes where they just don't seem to register the terror in the same way that somebody who wasn't pregnant would and that there might be some kind of like good reason for that. So I want to remind our listeners that Abigail's book, Mom Genes, Inside the New Science of Our Ancient Maternal Instinct, is now available at booksellers everywhere. You know, I want to end with a kind of discussion building on this point of response to stress and what we're going through right now, which is the COVID-19 pandemic. I know it disproportionately impacts mothers as they have had to step away from the workforce in order to take on more of the childcare duties and that it's potentially devastating an entire generation of mothers whose careers are, are not going to recover in the same way after this pandemic. And yet there's this notion that just in some ways they're equipped quite well to deal with this kind of stress. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Is like, is one of the reasons why the burden of caregiving falls more on the shoulders of mothers? Is that partly because like we might be better able to handle this than other parent counterparts? Or I don't know, I, I just wondered what your thoughts were. I mean, I, I remember thinking like, thank goodness I was not pregnant pregnant during this pandemic because I can't imagine the added I was. fear. Oh my. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, it was uh that was quite um how quite was a that? Trip. 
it was pretty interesting. Like I delivered my baby on April 20th last year. And at first I was worried because it was April 20th, 2020, which was like some sort of like pot smoking festival. Yeah, like, and I was like, everyone, 2020. I was like, oh my gosh, everyone at the hospital is going to be high. My fears changed. I uh, went in, this was like, you know, I could like see everything conspiring on these projections of when the peak, it was going to hit its first peak in our area. And it was very, very scary. But in terms of the pandemic and moms, I tend to think that the pandemic has showed people's true colors in a certain way. Like moms are super motivated to care for their kids. And there's a lot of other people who are certainly there's dads who've lost their jobs and in the course of caring for their kids. But I do think that there is an imbalance that has occurred. And some of it is culture. And some of it might be the way that moms are built. That's not to say that they're built to handle the stress of all this. And I think just the way that society has dismissed moms is actually in itself highly stressful. Like the idea that society just went on and people were going to bars while moms were like suffocating (laughs) under their kids is a really dismal signal for women to receive. And I know that the way that we treat each other does actually have implications for our behavior. And, And I found that to be really upsetting, but also informative because I just feel like a lot of times we do think that moms can just handle everything and we're constantly in mama bear mode. But we know that that's not the way the body works. You can't constantly be in like attack mode all the time. After a year of social isolation, which is extremely damaging to mothers, financial uncertainty, also super toxic to mothers, people just started to break down. Yeah, I just don't want, you know, I, I hate this idea that people are saying, well, one implication of what you've just said is that, okay, so mothers care more. And so they're more willing to step away from the workforce, um, which I think, you know, can lead to problematic decisions by companies to say, well, hey, you know, that was your choice. Exactly. And there's like, I want to emphasize too, that for a lot of people, myself included, the work world is like an extremely important part of our social brain. And you can get huge benefits from being in a professional environment and in a place where like your voice matters. And you know, you have power and you, you know, you are doing something that's important. Like it's the idea that we would be like sent off as sacrificial lambs is a hideous idea. But yeah, I think that I don't know. I mean, I'm not exactly sure why the pandemic played out this way for mothers. But it's also like there's record numbers of single mothers in America right now. So that could also play into it. Like there isn't anybody else who's going to like take care of your kids in the middle of a pandemic. So yeah, I think it's a lot of forces, cultural, biological, and then also just kind of really ugly things too. So just to end off, is there anything that you think that we should take away from this pandemic that can better society specifically as it relates to either treatment of moms or just kind of what what moms can learn from it? What do you think is kind of the takeaway, if there is one, that might make us better? I think that the pandemic showed a lot of people, not just kind of like reading the newspaper about moms in distress, like showed us ourselves in a visceral way, just how quickly we can crumble if like the world turns hostile and sour to us. And what I really hope is that we can take the lesson of how changeable maternal behavior is in response to environments, especially hostile environments like the pandemic, and kind of like carry that into normal life 
life and use that as sort of a source of empathy and compassion for each other and understanding that by doing things like providing um, paid maternity leave, paid paternity leave, better prepartum and postpartum care and better social support for women in late pregnancy and going forward, that all of these things can actually change the nature of the way that uh, somebody behaves. Because we've all seen in ourselves that we're not just like a monolith mom, like we're not just, you know, on autopilot, just living out our parenting philosophies and being some kind of like static personality. We're constantly reacting to the world around us. And I think we should take that knowledge going forward and create a better world for each other, because now we've all felt how important the context of parenting is. Well, Abigail Tucker, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. And I wish you a happy Mother's Day because you've certainly earned it. (laughs) You too. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Cheng, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Rahala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Awald, Charles Bile, and Dale LeMaster. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.